Daniel chapter 6. Daniel 6. As we study the book of Daniel, two facts become very clear about Daniel's relationship with God. And that is, God was faithful to Daniel, and Daniel was likewise faithful to God. And we're going to see that tonight in chapter 6. We're going to cover verses 1 through 10. I debated much about going through the entire chapter because I have just noticed lately I've tried to keep the chapters together because it tells each one of us told a story. Daniel 6 is no different. However, in studying Daniel 6, I was uh, impressed by the first 10 verses in particular and, and the practical applications we can learn from them. It's really got a lot to say to us as believers and how to live our lives before God. So I, I was bogged down and looking at these 10, 10 verses, and I thought, let's just focus on those 10 verses tonight. And I think it will be helpful to us as far as application is concerned uh, in, our, in our lives. What happened before this? Daniel chapter 5. Remember last week, Belshazzar, the king, it says in chapter 5, verse 1, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. He was drinking wine in their presence. Verse 4, they drank the wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And then a man's hand appears, and they see the handwriting on the wall. So Belshazzar is throwing a drunken feast festival all the while, while he knows Media Persia is right outside the walls, uh, and they're surrounded by the enemy at this time in history, and he knows that this is a serious situation. However, they're very confident in what they have in Babylon, their <coughs> kingdom, and the palace they've built in Babylon. They're very confident about what they have, and so he has a party, and, and they get drunk in this party, and Daniel comes down on him, and he says, Daniel nails him in a sermon, great sermon in chapter 5, verses 17 to 23, and look at verse 23. Daniel says to Belshazzar the king, he says, You have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines, have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, stone, which do not see, hear, or understand, but the God in whose hand are your life, breath, and all your ways you have not glorified. And what happened after that? Daniel says, in effect, in interpreting the writing and the handwriting on the wall, he says, King Belshazzar, your days are numbered. Your number's up. It's over with for you. Your kingdom's over with. It's ended. God says it's ended. And what happens in verse 30? That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom at about the age of 62. And so we're told here that the kingdom of Belshazzar and of Babylon was ended that very night when Media Persia came in and took over. It says that very clearly to us. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 5, verse 31. By the way, as I've told those that have been here all this time, uh, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew except for certain portions. And, and Daniel uh, chapter 2, verse 4, I think, through chapter 7, 28, is written in Aramaic. And so in the Aramaic uh, section here, Chapter 6, verse 1, actually begins in chapter 5, 31. It's the beginning of the chapter. So it says here in chapter 5, verse 31, Darius, and by the way, I, I know that you've heard Darius and Darius, and I've said all kinds of names for this guy. Everybody, by the way, everybody in church history and in the Bible is pronounced at least two different ways as far as I can tell. Augustine, Augustine, and it goes on and on. And so this guy's no difference, but it looks to me like his name is actually pronounced Darius. I'm going to say that. I'm going to try to say that, and that could be wrong. I hope it's right. But Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Now, who was this guy? And I want you to know there's a little controversy right at the beginning of this chapter. There's a debate as to who this guy Darius was. 
Was he, as some speculate, Gubaru, the governor of Babylon? Or was he Cyrus, the king, or somebody else? Well, it's a big debate, and we're not going to go into that because, quite honestly, it's not relevant to our purpose tonight. However, I want you to know about it. If you want to study on your own, pursue it for all your worth. We're told this, uh, if nothing else, in verse 31, he was about 62 years of age. And so, verse 1 it says here, it seemed good to, to Darius, and this is, by the way, verse, verses 1 uh, through 3 are uh, Daniel's faithfulness in the, in the new government. We talked about Daniel being faithful to God. This is his faithfulness in, in the new government. It says in verse 1, it seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. It talks about the satraps in verse 1, 120 of them, which that word means protectors of the kingdom. The, the media Persian Empire was the, the most vast empire in all the world uh, until that time, biggest empire ever in that, in that time, time period. And it was divided into many smaller territories, and the satraps ruled over the smaller territories. So they were kind of the, uh, the lower ruling officials. But then you have the commissioners in verse 2, of whom there were three. And they, they ruled over the satraps. They were the guys, the big guys in charge. You know, we talk about we're going you know, to see the big guys, our big bosses. Daniel was a big boss. What a surprise, right, that Daniel would be a commissioner. I mean, he's always been something like that, it seems like. He's, so Daniel was going to be a chief in this administration, the media Persian administration, or an overseer uh, over these satraps. And we're not told how that came about. It could be that Darius selected some of the, and he obviously did in Daniel's case, selected some of the ruling administrators from the Babylonian Empire, which Daniel was one, by the way, and put him in charge now of the media Persian Empire, the new empire on the scene. And uh, probably some of the leadership was chosen from Babylon. But the satraps were accountable to the commissioners here. Well, by the way, Daniel's work history is very interesting. If Daniel were to go to apply for a job, can you imagine him filling out his work history? Number one, first line, I was a captive in Judah, taken captive to Babylon. Number two, I became a wise man of Babylon, chief prefect over the wise men. Number three, I became the third ruler in the Babylonian kingdom. That's what it says in chapter 5 verse, uh, at the end of the chapter. And now, commissioner of the media Persian Empire. What a work history, right? Daniel's a very impressive guy. But it says in verse 3, then, then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps. Distinguishing himself. That word really means he was continually distinguishing himself or he was regularly distinguishing himself. It's something that happened all the time. He began to set himself apart from everybody else. He looked different from everybody. I mean, his, his whole work ethic, his outlook, his attitude, uh, everything was different about Daniel. People saw him and they said, man, what's, what's with this guy? He's different from everybody. He was special. And let me ask you this. It says he distinguished himself. Does that mean that Daniel was selfish? From what we know of Daniel so far in this book, was Daniel a selfish man? Not on your life. Was he an ambitious man who was trying to get ahead by stepping over on others and move up the ladder of success? Not at all. He didn't do that. Our knowledge of Daniel tells us that Daniel was a man of integrity, right? He was a man of honesty. He was uncompromising. He was bold. He was wise. He was honest. He was diligent. 
He was properly motivated. Most of all, he was a man who knew God. And we see that over and over again in each chapter in the book of Daniel. And so we can't say that he was one who was selfish. Daniel understood, not only knew God, he understood the sovereignty of God, understood who God was, and honored God always. That's Daniel. And so, but Daniel's constantly distinguishing himself. What does that mean? Well, or why did he do that? How did he do it? Verse 3 says, he, he began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. He possessed an extraordinary spirit. Uh, or there was an extraordinary spirit in him. You could, you could translate it. Look at chapter 5, verse 12, the first time we see that phrase. You remember last week we were talking about the queen mother uh, of Belshazzar and her testimony about Daniel? And the queen mother is telling Belshazzar, look, there's a guy in your kingdom that can, interpret, uh, that can interpret this handwriting on the wall. And in verse 12 of chapter 5, she says, uh, this was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel. Daniel is a man who has an extraordinary spirit. In other words, he has got a great outlook. A great attitude, not just a great attitude. Uh, you know, he's just not with, he was not just a positive thinker. Daniel didn't get up every morning and say, I'm going to have positive thoughts today about all that I do, and I'm going to encounter people with a positive attitude. That's not what I'm talking about. Daniel's outlook and perspective and attitude on life was influenced by his walk with God. Everything Daniel did was flavored and influenced by his walk with God, his extraordinary walk with God. And so his perspective on life was extraordinary because he walked with God, right? He was influenced by God. And what does that mean? I don't mean you, you, that when you're, you're, you have an emotional or, or you have a, uh, a spirit that is extraordinary that you're in a you know, constant state of emotionalism all the time and you're always running up and down and jumping up and down excitable. I don't mean that. I mean that you allow the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to influence your life and in your mind so your, your outlook on life is not like everybody else's. It's different from everybody else's. Let me ask you a question. Do we have a God-centered spirit and outlook or a self-centered spirit and outlook, self-focused? How, how, how do we see things? Uh, the idea is that we should glorify God with a right attitude. This is what Daniel always did. His outlook, his perspective on life was never complaining and whining and all that. It was always the right and proper motivation, right outlook. The scripture says, let this mind be in you, which was what? Also in Christ Jesus, right? And this is the kind of mindset that Daniel had. So he was a man possessed with an extraordinary spirit. And also it says in verse 3, <clears throat> the king uh, planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Isn't that amazing? Darius recognized this excellent spirit in Daniel. And the same thing was recognized by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, when Daniel enters Babylon. Same thing was recognized by all the kings that, that he worked with. And by the way, you remember what we said last week, Daniel is no longer a teenager as he was in chapter 1. He's in his 80s right now, right? He's in his late 80s. and pro He may be near 90 at this point, but he's definitely in his 80s. And so this is not a young man. This is an older man this time. And so, so much for our excuses about serving God as we get older, right? I've heard guys in their 20s and 30s say, I can't, I can't do certain things. I'm getting old. I'm thinking, What? 20, you're 28 years old, what are you telling me? Uh, what about Caleb, for example, who was 80, I think 85, and he said, give me that mountain, I'm going to take it. I have as much strength now as I had when I was 40. What about Daniel, who's in his 80s here, who's serving God faithfully? Don't ever let age be an excuse as you get older. Oh, I can't serve God now because I'm too old. 
Never to be an excuse. I'm looking at a crowd full of young people here, <laughs> except for some of you guys. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, don't let that be an excuse at all. And so in these few verses here, we see Daniel's faithfulness in, in the new government. Daniel's a faithful man. In verses 4 to 9, we see the plot against faithful Daniel. Yes, there's a plot that's hatched, unfortunately, against faithful Daniel. Verse 4 says, Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. It looks like a spirit of jealousy came upon these guys, Daniel's cohort, his, his co-leadership, and they were jealous of, of Daniel and that he was going to be the head now. Uh, maybe uh, they were jealous because Daniel was more competent than they were. Some think that they, they were jealous because they were Medes and Persians and Daniel was a Jew. And we've already seen some anti-Semitism in the book of Daniel, right, earlier in earlier chapters. Maybe that was the reason. Maybe they were younger guys and he was older and they thought, this old guy doing over here, uh, leading the, leading the uh, kingdom here, we don't need this. We're young and we're restless. <laughs> we want to be in charge. But at any rate, they were... They were jealous, right? And that happens in the workplace. I've seen it happen in the workplace. Myself, I've seen this. Guys, they put people, want to put people in charge, and others are jealous of them, and so on and so forth. It's called the sinful nature of man expressing itself, right? Total depravity of man expressing itself, in this case, in jealousy. These guys are jealous. And so what do they do? They begin to try to find a ground of accusation against Daniel. And that reminds me of, does that remind you of anybody in the Bible? It reminds me of Jesus of whom it was said in Luke 6-7, the scribes and Pharisees were watching Jesus closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. And it says that similar thoughts in other verses, that they were always watching Christ to see if they could get him, nail him and something. Judas betrayed him eventually, looking for the opportune moment, right, to betray him. And that's, this is what happens to the people that serve God the most faithfully. They're going to have to endure lies and false accusations. Isn't that right? I saw this happen to our pastor Mike firsthand and, and heard it firsthand. Have, having to endure lies and false accusations from others. It happens. It's happening right now to a faithful pastor in Melbourne, Florida, by the way, who's being atta under attack. Lied about. It happened to my old son Matthew's pastor, Sean in Louisiana, who was lied about as well. It's going to happen. It's part of what happens in, in serving God. Well, it says here in verse 4 that they were going to find this accusation in regard to, uh, against Daniel in regard to government affairs or in regard to the kingdom, literally. And so they began to examine the governmental records of Daniel to see if they could dig up any dirt on this guy. What, let's try to find something to try to get Daniel. Let's try to find some evidence that he's done some wrongdoing. And maybe they interviewed people he worked closely with or maybe they searched far and wide to, in some way to find out evidence against him. Anything they could to dig up dirt on Daniel. But it says in verse 4, they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption. They couldn't find anything. They uncovered nothing. You know, that's unusual. Because you know how politicians generally are, right? There's something somewhere you might be able to find against a guy. Even by mistake. Not with Daniel at all. No, no evidence of anything. Uncovered nothing. No bribes. No... Uh, dishonesty in finances, no shady deals on the side in government, no disloyalty to the king, nothing underhanded at all. They found nothing against Daniel in relationship to his job in the government of 
Media Persia. Why was that? Look at verse 4. They could find no ground of accusation because inasmuch as he was faithful. He was faithful. Dan, and this is what we said at the outset of this, of this chapter. Daniel was faithful to God, and God was faithful to Daniel. And this is key to this chapter. Daniel was faithful in what he did. He was trustworthy. This is why the king wanted Daniel to be the chief commissioner, because this is the way he was. Daniel was faithful to God. He was faithful to his three friends earlier. Uh, he was faithful to the people that he worked with. He was faithful to the kings that employed him. Daniel was always to be found as a faithful man. And it says in verse 4 here that there was no negligence or corruption, same word corruption as used before, no negligence or corruption was to be found in him at all. No negligence. He never failed to do anything he was given to do. Whatever assignments he was given to do, he didn't cast it off to the side and assign, oh, that's somebody else's job, and I don't care about that. That's not my problem. He never had that attitude at all. He did everything, every little detail he was assigned to do. And he didn't do a halfway job either. By the way, we've said this before. You want to be a good employee? Follow Daniel's example. You want to be a really good employee? Read the book of Daniel and follow his example, and you will be that employee. He was a great employee. Verse 5. These guys, they can't find any corruption in Daniel at all in the government affairs. So they go to plan B. It says here, Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless... We find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Now, isn't that interesting? They couldn't find any evidence of corruption against Daniel in government affairs in the kingdom. And so they looked for this evidence in his relationship to God. The, the issue is here, Daniel was a monotheist. He only worshipped Yahweh, the God of Israel. Whereas these other guys were all polytheists and worshipped many gods, as they did in Babylon, so they did in Media Persia as well. And so they said, we've got, to, we've got to get Daniel to the place to where he's going to have to choose between the law of the Medes and the Persians or the law of his God. And he's going to have to make a decision. And they knew that. Very, verse 5 is a very telling statement about Daniel. It's a very important verse, very telling about Daniel. Notice that this statement did not come from anybody that liked Daniel or were his friends, or his three friends, Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah. It didn't come from those guys. This came from his enemies. These guys were worshippers of idols, and they're the ones that said this in verse 5. This speaks loud about Daniel. They said, we're not going to find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. That's a telling statement about Daniel. Daniel's beliefs about God were not hidden. They were never hidden. He was open about his faith. He was not a secret disciple. He wasn't ashamed of God. He wasn't ashamed to be forward and open about God. He made it clear to everyone. You want to, you want to see that? Look at chapter 1, verse 8. <clears throat> when Daniel first got to Babylon as a captive, and they were training him for work in the kingdom, it says in chapter 1, verse 8, and this is his witness before Ashpenaz. We talked about him in chapter 1. Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food, with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials, that's Ashpenaz, that he would not defile himself. And so we see already he's beginning to take a stand for God and he's making open his witness for God. He believed, had a conviction, you shouldn't eat certain types of food and so on. We talked about that when we were in chapter 1. And he took the stand right then and there and he became a witness right then and there. And people knew, begin to know, this, is, this Daniel serves Yahweh of Israel. He doesn't serve our gods. Look at chapter 2, verse 28. This is his witness, Daniel's witness before Nebuchadnezzar. 
Daniel in this long chapter is, is interpreting the dream for Nebuchadnezzar, as, as you remember. And Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar, the ruling king, the greatest king that the, Neo, that the Babylonian Empire ever had, he says to this great king, however, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he starts talking about God, and he, and he does this with Nebuchadnezzar, and you see how Nebuchadnezzar was influenced by chapter 4 in such a great way. So Nebuchadnezzar witnesses before, uh, Daniel rather, witnesses before Nebuchadnezzar. And then he witnesses before Belshazzar. We read that earlier. And he, and he tells him, you're blaspheming God. You're challenging God, and God's not going to stand for it. Once again, a witness before God. And these, back in Daniel 6, these two other commissioners, whoever they were, along with Daniel, were, and the satraps, they were, they were very aware. The satraps that were close to Babylon, the capital, at least, were very aware of Daniel's relationship to God, his commitment to God. They knew this. So I have to ask all of us here, and this, by the way, I'm very convicted about from on Daniel because of Daniel chapter six. I'm reading this thinking, man, what a how difficult it is. I mean, what my life compared to Daniel is not very good. I'm not measuring up very good at this point. Um, and I have to ask ourselves the question: Are we ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Are we public about our faith, or? Keep it private. Keep it. Are we secret disciples? Don't really want to mention them because we don't want to get anybody riled up or upset or make maybe they won't like us at work. How are we about our faith? I'm not saying are you obnoxious about your faith at work, but do you have a testimony for Christ at work? Paul said what? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God and the salvation, right? He said that. And I am convicted about Daniel's stand for God. How about you? Also, the statement of verse 5 tells us that Daniel's commitment was such that he would not compromise in the face of punishment or death. And these guys knew this. They were trying to trap Daniel in this very thing. They wanted him to die. They're trying to get rid of Daniel. They don't want him as a commissioner. They don't want him over them. They don't like him. Uh, he, you know, uh, they said of, uh, by the way, it's, it is said of C.T. Studd, missionary to China, India, and Africa, that his life was an eternal rebuke to everyone. His very life was an eternal rebuke to people because he was just, you know, so dedicated to God, others felt uncomfortable around him. Same way with Daniel. And so they're trying to get him, and they know that he'll, he'll die if he has to. They know he's very committed to his faith. So in verse 6, it says here, Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement, that word by agreement I think is used three times at least in this chapter, to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. The phrase by agreement, and I think it's in the NASB uh, side column too, means to come as with thronging, to come as a throng, to come, uh, to, in other words, to come as a group, a group effort against Daniel. It's like a conspiracy against Daniel by all these people together, however many there are, are coming together against Daniel in a conspiratorial movement and trying to put, trying to catch him in a, in a trap here. And that's what, they're, and so they're coming with agreement together to try to get Daniel. Verse seven. All the commissioners, oh, this is what they say, King Darius lived forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. What a great plan this is right here. Does anybody see anything wrong with verse 7? They said, all the commissioners of the kingdom... Uh, one uh, got together and decided we come up with a, a great plan here. Is that true? 
That is an outright lie. Uh, I can think of one commissioner that wasn't in on that plan, Daniel. I don't think he agreed to that. He would never agree to that. Mike, I think they might have had a secret meeting. In fact, I'm sure they did. That's part of the guidelines to how to get rid of a pastor, by the way. And so, no doubt they did that, and Daniel wasn't there. Uh, uh, by the way, all the government officials probably couldn't have been involved anyway. This kingdom went far and wide, and there may have been guys out in the far-flung reaches of Siberia somewhere that couldn't be a part of this whole deal here. So, but what's happening here in verse 6 and verse 7? These guys are showing something about themselves. These two other commissioners in particular, they're showing why Darius wouldn't pick these guys to be the head over the kingdom. They can't be counted on. They're liars. Just like we saw earlier in Daniel chapter 2 about the wise men who were ready to lie to Nebuchadnezzar. And so this is why we see that Darius wanted Daniel to be in charge. I think everybody knew, and we could see this by now, everybody knew Daniel was an honest man that was forthright, trustworthy, and faithful and did what he said he was going to do. And in this case also. And so they said in this plan they come up with, look, King, if anybody petitions God or man during the next 30 days, uh, it's going to be a problem here. We, we, we want it to be this way. Uh, petition man, what is he talking about? Well, maybe the priest that the people would go to for mediators to their gods. But they said, no, no petitions to anyone but you, you, O king. Probably disguised, probably under the guise, rather, of showing loyalty to King Darius. Was this made in front of him, probably? And they said, look, if anybody does this, Anybody praised any god or man besides you, O king, in the next 30 days, he's going to be cast into the lion's den. And that was an absolutely gruesome death, as you can imagine. We'll talk about that later on uh, in a couple weeks from now. But in verse 8, it says, Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. The law of the Medes and Persians, as you know, and this is in Esther also, by the way, once they made a law... They were not supposed to change it, couldn't change it. And so, uh, and maybe it was because some people think it was because it would make the king look bad. If the king went back and said, oh, I made a mistake, let's change this law, that's going to make the king look bad. He's got to show authority and power and all that. I don't know what the reason is. Nevertheless, that was the way it was with the law of the Medes and Persians. You don't change it once you make it. And so he, the king signs this into law. And so in verses nine, 4 to 9, we see the plot. Against faithful, Daniel, against faithful Daniel. And in verses 10 to 15, we're only going to go through verse 10, we see Daniel's faithfulness in spite of the circumstances. Daniel's faithfulness in spite of the circumstances. It says in verse 10, Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had done as he had been doing previously. What a tremendous verse this is. This is a verse for you guys to meditate on, as, as Mike would say. This is a verse to meditate on and think about seriously right here. And it's ramifications for our life today. Uh, let's talk about Daniel's house first. It says he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber he had windows open toward Jerusalem. A guy named Slotkey, <laughs> I'm sure you don't care about at all, is a scholar says this about this particular uh, room and house. He said, this was not an attic, but a room on the flat roof of the house. These rooms were and still are common in the east, being used as private apartments to which one retired when wishing to be undisturbed. 
They usually had latticed windows, which allowed free, circulate, free circulation of air. So he's saying he's on the flat roof of the house. And he's praying toward Jerusalem, it says here. Where did he get that? Probably from Solomon, who when he dedicated the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, he said, if you guys, you know, if, if God judges us because we've sinned against him and he takes you off into a foreign land, deports you to somewhere, he says, when you pray, face Jerusalem, right? And pray toward Jerusalem and remember the temple. Remember God. Remember your people. And so Daniel was praying toward Jerusalem just like Solomon had said to do. What's interesting about this verse is in verse 10, it says, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he prayed. When he knew this document was signed, it says, if you pray to anybody besides the king, you're going to be cast into the den of lions. When he saw that was done, when he knew it was done, he prayed. That didn't stop him at all. I mean, he refused to compromise and pray in private. He could have prayed in private, maybe, in a private area where he couldn't be seen. And I'm not saying he was on public display either. I think these guys had to maybe look a little bit. But nevertheless, he could be seen to some degree or another. I don't know why it doesn't tell us how, how obvious it was. But he could have prayed. What would you have done? Put yourself in Daniel's shoes. Would you have said, well, God knows. I'll, I'll keep praying, but I'll try to go into my inner chamber, like it says in Matthew, <laughs> and pray there, right? And you start claiming Matthew 6 then? Even though it hadn't been written at that time. Um, but Daniel had convictions he would die for. Convictions he would die for. And this is the kind of conviction that we need to have. And I know, you know, it's easier said. It's fine for me to stand up here behind this non-air-conditioned building at this particular moment, apparently. <laughs> and, uh, and why that happens every Sunday night, I don't really know. That's why I wear a shirt instead of a coat here, by the way. Um, but to have convictions worth dying for, if we're in the situation where it's difficult, uh, where, what would we do? Would we stand for God or would we run and hide? We won't know until we we're faced with that. But there's a possible conflict here too. Isn't the Bible say that we're supposed to obey the laws of the land? But Daniel here is breaking a law that's just been set of the land. He's breaking this law. Somewhat of a conflict here. How does that reconcile? How do you reconcile biblical obedience with obeying the laws of the land? Like Romans 13 later on will say, you know, obey the laws of the land, obey the civil authorities. Well, you do what Peter did. You do what Peter did in Acts when, a high, when a, the law of the land comes in conflict with God's law, which is a higher law, you say we ought to obey God rather than men. Now, we're not lawbreakers here. We, all of us understand we're to obey the law and keep the law. We understand that, and I'm urging you to keep the law. But if it, manda- if it breaks God's law, if they tell you break God's law and obey our law, then guess what? We can't do it. We have to obey the law of God. And that's what Daniel did here. He obeyed the law of God, a higher law. Putting himself at risk, great risk. But I want to continue. I want to talk about the rest of the time about Daniel's prayer life. I think this is very important. And and this is going to be very applicational too. Daniel's prayer life. Uh, Hopefully this will be helpful. Um, And this is all all in this verse. You can see it for yourself. It says here, Daniel continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Daniel's prayer life is absolutely exemplary for all of us here tonight. And we can all learn from Daniel's prayer life. And in verse 10, there are several elements that mark the prayer life of Daniel that tell us how we should be in prayer. First of all, his prayer life was marked by consistency. It was marked by consistency. The text says he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day. 
It also says as he had done previously. He continued kneeling. In other words, he'd been doing this all along. He'd always been praying like this. He didn't just start now that he's in trouble. He'd always been doing this. This is something that he had consistently done day in and day out. He prayed when there were threats against him. He prayed when there were no no threats against him. He prayed when Nebuchadnezzar was the king. He prayed when Abinadus was the king. It's not mentioned here. He prayed when other guys were the king who aren't mentioned. He prayed when Belshazzar was the king. He prays when Darius is the king. He prayed when Babylon was in charge. He prays when media Persia is in charge. He prays when it's raining or when it's shining. doesn't matter to Daniel. He's always praying. He's consistent in his prayer life. Constantly consistent. He prayed when Nebuchadnezzar was in, at the height of his power, filled with pride and arrogance. And he prayed when Nebuchadnezzar was in the, in the field acting like an animal for seven years in a row. It didn't matter to Daniel. Daniel prayed consistently. Regardless of circumstances, he prayed consistently. And I wonder, how is our prayer life consistent? Like Daniel's was. Regardless of what's happening, we're praying on a daily basis anyway. Secondly, Daniel's prayer life was marked by humility. It says here he continued kneeling on his knees. He was kneeling on his knees. I don't want to overshoot this one, but I think there's something to be said for this. Daniel showed with his whole body, mind, and soul that he was worshiping God. And in Daniel's case, the posture of his body revealed the condition of his soul. It showed Daniel humility. It showed Daniel's humility before God. It showed his dependence upon God. It showed his submission to God. I mean, Daniel was a man who was humble before God. By the way, don't forget, Daniel is what age at this time? He's in his late 80s. And guess what he's doing? He's kneeling down and praying. Ryan and I were doing a glue, were gluing the carpet on the, in the nursery floor the other day. And by the way, it's an absolutely phenomenal job we did. <laughs> if you want to see, pull the carpet up, you can see the glue underneath. But it's the kind of work that we do, that we're known for. And while we were doing this, we were on our knees the whole time, spreading out the carpet, as Dave knows about this. He's done many of these kind of jobs. And we both begin to say, man, this is kind of like, gets thought to your knees after a while, right, Ryan? It gets, it gets to your knees, and we thought, what if you had to do this all day for a living? It'd be tough, although we, you know, the guys have knee pads, but nevertheless, it'd be difficult. But here's Daniel in his 80s, and what's he doing? He's on his knees praying three times a day. That's amazing. You know, many people in the Bible did this. It says in Psalm 95, 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us what? Kneel before the Lord our Maker, right? Kneel before the Lord our Maker. Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple on his knees. Did you know that? 1 Kings chapter 8. Jesus, when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, knelt down and prayed. Jesus did it. When Dorcas died and Peter went to heal her, and he did by the power of God, Peter knelt down beside her and prayed. When Paul was saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders in chapter 20, it says when he was saying goodbye, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. And then in Ephesians Chapter 3, verse 14, Paul said, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. By the way, George Mueller, my favorite guy in church history, who oversaw 2,000 orphans and always was the great man of faith, he was greatly influenced by the biography of George Whitfield. Did you know that? George Whitfield had a great influence on him. And I wanted to read you a statement uh, about this. This is very interesting. It's just a short statement here about the influence Whitfield had on Mueller. It says here, particularly was this impression deeply made on Mr. Mueller's mind and heart that Whitfield's unparalleled success and evangelistic labors was plainly traceable to two causes and could not be separated from them as direct effects. What do we attribute the success of Whitfield to? Two causes. Namely, number one, 
his unusual prayerful, prayerfulness, and number two, his habit of reading the Bible on his knees. I'm not making this up. This is what the biographer said about him. And the thought of Daniel's on, Daniel on his knees suggests us a person that's humble before God and that is dependent upon God for all his needs. Am I saying that we've got to pray this way, that we've got to pray on our knees from now? All everybody here has got to pray on their knees? I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying this. I'm saying check for yourself what the scripture says about this particular subject and examine it for yourself and make the determination. People prayed in different postures in the Bible. I'm aware of that. But there's something, I think, and, and I was convicted by this even, something about praying on your knees, I think, that is different than that. And, and maybe I don't want to be mystical or anything, but the Bible talks about it over and over again. Look at it for yourself. His prayer life was marked by humility. Thirdly, Daniel's prayer life was marked by discipline. He prayed each day without fail. And how many times a day did he pray? Three times, right? Every day he prayed three times. That does not come naturally. It takes self-discipline. James 4 says, draw near to God. You draw near to God, and God will draw near to you, it says. Discipline yourself to do that. We're big on emphasizing the sovereignty of God, right? We do that all the time, and rightly so. The book of Daniel emphasizes it. But we need to equally emphasize the responsibility of man, as Ryan said today in the Sunday school lesson. And we've got to discipline our own lives. I mean, that's part of this whole thing. It's not just God is sovereign. God's not going to discipline you in the way of self-discipline. You're going to have to discipline yourself. What does it say in 1 Timothy 4.7? Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That's a very important verse. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Those two things are, work always. God's sovereignty, our responsibility. We might say we're too busy to pray. But that's where discipline comes in. Do you think that Daniel might make the argument he was too busy to pray? He was a commissioner, whom I've redubbed the commish now, over, over that, over that one of the three commissioners at least. And don't you think this guy was busy? He was over the administration of the media Persian Empire, a huge empire all over the place. Uh, there's no telling what this guy had to do in the way of responsibilities. And yet, guess what he did? He said, three times a day I'm going to have a, a time with God. And he disciplined himself to do it. And so he was a man whose prayer life was marked by discipline. Are we disciplining our lives for this purpose? I mean, it's, I, listen, I know I'm like you guys, lazy, don't want to do anything spiritual. Uh, maybe I shouldn't indict all of you here. <laughs> I'm like some of you guys. <laughs> that way, unspiritual. Uh, guess what I have to do? Like you, I have to discipline myself or it's not going to happen. Discipline our lives to do this. Fourthly, his prayer life was marked by frequent, frequent praying. Three times a day. Guess what? That kept Daniel in tune with God all day long. From, from prayer time to prayer time. Just think about that. If, you, if, you do, if we only pray in the morning and never the rest of the day, man, by the afternoon and evening, we may be yelling at our friends, losing our patience with people, saying things we shouldn't have said, doing things we shouldn't have done. But if we are in this mode of praying more than once a day, praying different times a day, it's going to keep us more in tune with God. And also, we should be lifting our hearts to God throughout the day in prayer anyway, right? Psalm 55, 17, 16, Psalm 55, verses 16 and 17 say, as the psalmist said, As for me, I shall call upon God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I will complain and murmur to God, and he will hear my voice. Charles Spurgeon said about this verse, The three periods chosen are most fitting. To begin, continue, and end the day with God is supreme wisdom. That's true. You know, Charles Spurgeon said that, uh, I told, we were talking about this the other day, 
Charles Spurgeon said that not 30 minutes would go by in a day where he didn't lift his heart to God in prayer. At least once every 30 minutes. He was always doing that. So it's better to pray. This is true. It's better to pray frequently and throughout the day, shorter prayers even, than it is just once in the morning, long prayer, if you're going to make a choice. So his prayer, his prayer life was marked by frequent praying. Fifthly, his prayer life was marked by supplication. It says here the word praying in verse uh, 10. Uh, Leon Wood says that that word praying indicates the voicing of requests to God, requesting things from God. And by the way, there's an, this, there's an unhealthy attitude today of, of asking God for things. So you got two different things going on. On the one hand, some guys are demanding that God give them things. They're commanding God, they're, and they're naming and claiming it, right? On the other hand, you got this attitude that's prevalent nowadays. I've heard it often. We really don't want to be asking God for things because it's not very spiritual to do that. We don't want to be that way, right? And we shouldn't really be concerned about our needs after all. That also is false. Jesus said what? Give us this day our daily bread. That's how we're to pray. He said pray for your needs. If he said it, it's good enough for me. Pray for others' needs too. We're told again and again by examples in the Bible and by precept that we are to pray for needs. Our needs and other needs. It's not a selfish thing. If you're doing it with the right motivation. Remember Daniel's request? Look at chapter 2, verse 17. Personal request from Daniel. Chapter 2, verse 17. They're going to kill all the wise men of Babylon if the dream's not interpreted. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel prays not to be killed <laughs> and for a, you know, information on how to, be, how to interpret the dream. Prayed for his needs, right? Don't be afraid to ask God for things that are necessary. God is big enough to handle your measly request, okay? He's not stretched, you're not stretching him out. He's, it's okay. You can ask him for things. Luke 11:13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him or give good things to them that ask him in Matthew 7? God can do it. Ask God for things that are necessary. He'll get, and he'll, God says he'll supply our needs, as he said. If we'll ask, Daniel's prayer life was marked by supplication, as ours should be. I'm not talking about asking out of the will of God either. Asking the will of God, according to the scriptures. So, his life was prayer life was marked by supplication. And his life also was marked by, prayer life was marked by thanksgiving. It says here in verse, uh, Daniel chapter 6, we'll quit in a little while here. Daniel chapter 6, that he was praying and giving thanks before his God as he had done previously. Prayer life was marked by thanksgiving. Understand Daniel's situation right here. He's going to be killed because he's praying to God, right? Does he have something to be thankful for here? He's going to have death by lions happening pretty soon. What does he have to thank God for? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you and I complain and whine about our situation and worry and fret? Not Daniel. He's thanking God. Was Daniel thank, Did he have anything to thank God about all this time he was a captive in Babylon, Media, Persia? He could have complained about that, and he never did. He wasn't focused on his circumstances. He was focused on God, right? So he was a man of, of thankfulness. And we should also learn from that, that we can honor God by being thankful to him. So learn from Daniel's prayer life regarding this also. <clears throat> and so we see Daniel giving thanks. We see him praising God in a tough situation here. And we need to make that also a regular part of our praying. How's our prayer life? Are we consistent? Or are we failing in that? We pray today and not tomorrow and not the next day and not the next day and then we get convicted and oh, we got to pray again. Forgot about that. 
or we didn't do it. Are we marked, is our prayer life marked by humility? We're truly dependent upon God, humble before him. Are we frequent in our praying? Are we disciplined in our praying? Are we asking God for things for ourselves that are needful and necessary and for others? Are we thank, thank, uh, thanking God for things? That word also means praising, by the way, and praising him for things. Is this how our prayer life looks? And we're going to look more about the prayer life of Daniel in chapter 9 when we get there. It looks to me like I've got a long way to go, at least, reading these 10 verses right here. I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to just cut out these 10 verses and work on them for the next five years before I read any more of the Bible. Daniel shows us how to live so, so as to please God. He really does. He's got an extraordinary spirit. He's responsible and hardworking. He's an excellent employee. He's faithful to God and man. He's honest in his dealings with people. He's diligent. He's unashamed of, of his relationship to God. He's uncompromising. He's a man of prayer. God has him here for a reason in this, in this book as an example for us. And we would be wise follow the example of Daniel. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for this chapter and for your word and for Daniel and the example he set for all of us. And we fall way short of this, Lord. And uh, we just uh, confess our sins of not disciplining ourselves to live the way you would have us to live and uh, being consistent about it and being faithful. And we just pray like Daniel, we would be faithful to you and others. We would live in such a way as to please and glorify you in all things. We just pray this in Christ's name.